When you walk into the produce section of the grocery store, there may be only a few kinds of apples for sale. But about 100 years ago, there were apple trees in almost every neighborhood, and thousands of apple varieties grew all over the South. When I see a tree, it's a big deal. If it has leaves, it's a big deal. If it actually fruits, like it has a ladder under it, that's a really big deal. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, the story of two people on a quest to rediscover some of those many varieties of apples. The fascinating world of fruit exploring and how the booming hard cider industry might figure into our apple orchards of tomorrow. Here's Mary Helen Montgomery with the story. Two millennials walk up to a stranger's front porch in Mentone, Alabama. Pete's a big bearded guy. He's 27 years old and dressed in Carhartts and a hoodie. He's used to knocking on strangers' doors, but admits it usually goes better if his friend Eliza's with him. Luckily, Eliza's here today. She's 32, dressed in a red gingham shirt and work boots. And, as usual, she's exuding friendliness. An elderly man comes to the door. He's not sure what's going on, but seems delighted to see these two anyway. This is Eliza's smile in action. Hello. I want to talk about your apple trees in the front yard. Oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) Eliza Greenman and Pete Halupka knock on strangers' doors like this all the time. You know, if you've got a bunch of apple trees in your side yard, like, we're pulling over, we're going to knock on the door, we're going to talk to you about what they are. They call themselves fruit explorers. They hunt for fruits, mostly apples, growing wild or in people's yards. Pete and Eliza have actually stopped at this house before, Jimmy Wright's house. Last time, Wright's wife answered the door. It was late summer, apple season. Pete and Eliza asked if they could try the Wright's apples, and they liked what they tasted. Did you, did you hear Eliza say she came all the way from Virginia for your apple tree? <laughs> no. <laughs> I did. She's I drove 600 miles because I love your apple tree for cider. I think it's going to be next big thing. By that, Eliza means that she and Pete think that the apple that grows here might be perfect for making hard cider. Eliza asks Wright if he wants to name the apple. You got any ideas off the top of your head? Uh, no. We've been calling it Fetty or Fetty Wap. That's okay. That's Fetty Wap, as in the hip-hop artist who hit the top of the charts last year. Best known for his song, Trap Queen. That's who Pete and Eliza chose to name the apple after. It was like half joke, but that um, apple is called Fetty Wap. We are passionate about taking like traditions and knowledge from older folks and making it accessible to everyone. I really wanted to name it Beyonce, but I was ruled out because I was in a car full of guys. (laughs) It needs to be noted that I love Beyonce. (laughs) Oh, there's also Ludacrisp, which is a variety that her apple breeder friend is talking about. Today, Pete and Eliza have an apple to save. In front of Jimmy Wright's house, Eliza's up in the Fetty Wap tree. Let me get a little higher. She wedges in between limbs, clips branches, and tosses them down to Pete. What she's clipping is scion wood, 
It's the flexible new growth at the end of the limb. They'll cut some off so Eliza can take it home to Virginia to graft to existing rootstocks. Those root systems will grow the same kind of tree that's in the Wright's yard. You can plant apples from seed too, instead of grafting. But if you plant from seed, you'll have no idea what kind of apple you'll get. That's because apple trees cross-pollinate, and it takes two kinds of trees to procreate. So if you want to grow a certain kind of apple, you have to do it through grafting, not by planting a seed. This is like the best part of doing what we do is because we get to climb in trees for like, I mean, I climb in trees for a living almost. Eliza's done clipping and jumps out of the tree. She and Pete sort through the stack of branches on the ground. Okay. You're probably at, you're, you're at uh, I'm gonna say 38 to 41 sticks. Each branch can graft onto more than one tree. That's because you only need one bud for each graft, and there are multiple buds on these cuttings. And this should be enough for Eliza to graft onto at least 100 rootstocks at home in Virginia. That means that in a few years, 100 more trees will be growing Fetiwap. Pete and Eliza first met each other at a sustainable agriculture conference when Eliza was preaching to people about heirloom varieties of berries. Eliza lives in Northern Virginia, where she runs a nursery and teaches about fruit tree production. She's renovating an orchard where she'll grow apples and other fruits. Pete lives in Northern Alabama and runs a small fermentation business. His company, Harvest Roots, makes kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut, and other kinds of fermented food. He's also in the process of getting an apple orchard up and running. As Eliza and Pete talked with each other, they realized they were both apple nuts who were passionate about biodiversity in the South. At one time, there were thousands of apple varieties in the South. But now, people only have access to a few kinds. And that's where we are today, with 10 varieties of apples at the grocery store, Tops. When I look at a pile of apples in the store, like Granny Smith, next to Golden Delicious, next to Red Delicious. It's like a morgue to me. It's like so bureaucratic. They started thinking, people don't give Southern apples enough credit. Most of the apples that are grown to eat fresh come from Washington, Michigan, and New York State. Southern apples have a different flavor. They're usually too tart for most people, and they get overlooked. But there are all kinds of other uses for Southern apples, besides just eating them fresh. You can't really find an apple without a use. And at the least, it's going to uh, make a great vinegar. Not to mention apple brandy, not to mention fresh juice, not to mention dumplings, not to mention fried pies. And not to mention hard cider. Hard cider has been selling like crazy recently. Just in the last two years, sales in the US have nearly doubled. Eliza has worked in the hard cider industry, and she sees a problem. There's not enough apples. We're relying too much on English and French apple varieties that don't grow well here in the South. They started thinking, what if we find a Southern apple that we would grow just for hard cider? Those same varieties that are too tart for a lunchbox could be perfect for hard cider. American apple cultivars, they're traditionally known as high sugar, high acidity. And so in ciders these days, in this new resurgence, you're getting high sugar, high acidity ciders. Which makes for a cider that tastes a lot like soda. And what's really missing is that soft tannin without much acidity, and, but also has a lot of sugar. Which is what they thought a southern apple might produce, a cider that has the same complexity as wine. 
In the 1800s, we lived in a country of farmers, and every community had apple trees. Hard cider was wildly popular back then, more popular than beer. But eventually, hard cider left the mainstream. So here's what happened with cider in America. Diane Flint is the owner of Foggy Ridge Cider in southwest Virginia. Foggy Ridge was the first cidery to open in the South in modern times. There were lots of factors that came together. The, the first and most powerful one was just the Industrial Revolution and the decline of farms. Because for the most part, people were not buying apples for cider. They were getting apples from their backyard, from their small farm orchard, you know, from a neighbor. So they were taking from what was around them. And as people moved to the cities, that went away. Immigration affected cider production, too. But as you got more German and European immigrants who had a beer-drinking culture, beer began to be brewed more than cider. It's faster, it's cheaper, um, the, the raw material is more portable, um, not as heavy as apples. And then, of course, when Prohibition ro- rolled around, that was about it. The cider apple orchards were removed because many of the cider apples were not good eating apples. And then when Prohibition ended, it was easier and cheaper to make beer. Um, the beer, the big beer companies came up, and that was the drink of, drink of choice. Cider was eclipsed by beer, but it's also been brought back to life by the beer industry. As craft beer has made a comeback, people have become more aware of all craft beverages, including cider. But that's not all. People are actually drinking less beer now than they used to. So beer companies have started selling cider, and they've spent a lot of money on advertising. The popular brand Angry Orchard is made by the same company that makes Sam Adams beer. Angry Orchard's ad budget year before last was $42 million. So that people talk about the resurgence of craft and drinking local beverages, and it's, yeah, 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 but $42 million goes a long way to making a market. Even the craft ciders are benefiting. It's a good time to be in the craft cider industry, and Eliza and Pete want in. So Eliza and Pete came up with a plan. They wanted to try to find the next big cider apple, and they wanted to find it in the South they decided to go on a road trip. Everywhere they stopped, they looked in people's yards, on the edge of forests. Around here, all everywhere, uh, you know, 100 years ago, there were apple orchards. But what happened was, we also have wild apples growing in our forests. Uh, So what you get is a wild meats domesticated hybrid that's growing along the forest edge. And so not only were we looking for old known varieties, but we were looking for new, awesome stuff. But they weren't just looking for an apple on their road trip. They wanted to find stories about Southern apples too, from the people who knew the very most, the veteran apple growers in the South, many of whom are in their 80s and 90s. Coming up, fruit explorers of the past and present including a visit with a retired fruit explorer who saved many of Alabama's old apples. That's ahead. There is that donor music. Crescent Communities is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. They cultivate community by building residential, commercial, multifamily, and land developments all across the region. One sure way to build community is around the table. 
This November marks the 10th Music to Your Mouth, a food and music festival hosted at Palmetto Bluff, a crescent community in Bluffton, South Carolina. Southern restaurant stalwarts like Ann Quatrano, Ashley Christensen, Mike Lotta, and Stephen Satterfield return to Music to Your Mouth each year to share recipes and, of course, to tell a story or two. You can find a full schedule of events populated with many more familiar Southern Foodways Alliance faces. That's online at musictoyourmouth.com. And now, back to Mary Helen Montgomery. If you ride in a car with Pete or Eliza, you'll notice that they're always on the hunt. They'll point out trees and bushes on the side of the road as you drive by, even if you're on the interstate going 70. Fruit trees in general, if you start recognizing their form and you get really excited about it, the landscape just lights up. It used to be, for me, I'd look for skate spots, but now I look for fruit trees. Pete and Eliza are actually part of a long history of American plant hunters. The first known professional plant hunter in America was John Bartram. In the early 1700s, he and his sons explored the American South, collecting plants for his nursery. Even Thomas Jefferson did some plant hunting. He went to Italy to find a new kind of rice that could grow in dry soil. By the mid-1800s, the U.S. government still saw a need for this kind of work. We needed more biodiversity in our agriculture, for food security. In case there was a blight of some kind, you needed other varietals of fruits and vegetables as backups. And they figured new agriculture would be good for the economy and good for health. They sent fruit explorers all over the world. To China for tea leaves, to Turkestan for melons. Because the USDA knew that if they didn't get an alfalfa hardy enough to grow in South Dakota, that there, were, there wasn't going to be any meat, there wasn't going to be any nitrogen in the soil. So they sent a USDA explorer to Siberia to find alfalfa strains. These explorers, these sort of like famous ragged men, introduced tons of new plants to American soil. And now, about a century later, Pete and Eliza still see the need for this kind of work, for fruit exploring. Because now we grow a very small number of plant species on a massive scale. Pete and Eliza belong to the North American Fruit Explorers, a group with about 3,000 members. Today, fruit explorers don't necessarily go to exotic lands around the globe. Instead, they're looking for what's already growing in the landscape. When Eliza finds an interesting apple, it can be downright thrilling. Whatever the feeling is, it's probably the exact same of just like finding like King Tut's treasure or something, you know. It's the same for me and finding these lost apple varieties. When Eliza finds an old apple tree she's looking for, she gets giddy. If she's with a friend, she'll pose for a picture, hugging the branches. That's actually how they found the Fetiwap. At the very end of their road trip, practically in Pete's backyard in Mintone, Alabama. We searched all over the south, and what do you know, right under our noses here, there's, there's this apple that I think is amazing. It's a bittersweet, which means that it's got soft tannins. Um, a tannin is like uh, what dries your mouth out if you eat like an acorn or something. And uh, it doesn't have any acidity. They picked lots of the Fetty Wrap apples. Pete took them home and pressed them into cider. It would take months to ferment, months before he could taste it, to see if the Fetty Wrap cider is as good as they hoped it would be. The more Eliza and Pete can learn about the old apples, the better chance they'll have of growing them well, making good cider from them, and telling other people about them. That's where some of these elders come in. There was another purpose to their road trip, too, beyond the search for the cider apple. And that was visiting some of the South's best apple growers. They went to Virginia. 
and visited Albemarle Cider Works, where we met Tom Burford, who is a seventh-generation orchardist. In North Carolina, they visited Lee Calhoun, a man who is revered among Southern apple growers. He's responsible for researching hundreds of heirloom varieties. He literally wrote the book on old Southern apples. Another one of the people Eliza and Pete visited on the road trip was Joyce Neighbors. She's 88 now. Joyce and Pete both live in Alabama, and Pete considers her a mentor. He likes to drop by when he can so that he can soak in some of the knowledge she spent so long learning. I went with him to visit her. Hey, stranger. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Joyce moves across her living room with a walker. She sits in a big cushioned chair with a quilt draped over the back. She leans back and gets comfortable. We're here to talk about heirloom apples in Alabama, the kind that Joyce spent so many years growing in her backyard orchard. I guess I'm the one that started most of those southern apple in Alabama. When Joyce says she started the old southern apples here, this is what she means. A long time ago, at least 100 years ago, it was very common to grow apples in your yard, and there were all different kinds. Southern apples are special because during the hard times a long time ago, that's the only thing people had to eat. It was a subsistence food. They had to have it to survive. They got us through hard times. Yes, they sure did. The old-timers didn't fool with trees. It wasn't any good. When you say the old-timers, who are you talking about? Like your grandparents? Maybe my great-grandparents back around 1900 to 1930s. Joyce was interested in old apples, though. So when she says she started old apples in Alabama, she means she brought many of them back to life. I just got excited about it. It might be in my family history because my grandfather Whitley was a big orchardist. So in the 1980s, she got plugged in with a group of orchardists in the South who were bringing back heirloom apples, including Lee Calhoun. Remember the one who wrote the book on old Southern apples? Calhoun gave Joyce a mission. He said, well, I'm going to make you responsible for Alabama. (laughs) The whole state? (laughs) Yeah, yes. Joyce had an orchard in her backyard, and just like Pete and Eliza, she would follow crazy leads to hunt for apples. And when she would find an exciting apple, she would add it to her orchard. Granny Neighbors, Red Rebel, Red Hackworth. In its heyday, it had about 200 trees in it. And when it was in full bloom on a sunny day, it was a real pretty place. Joyce's orchard is in her backyard, a very short walk from the house. But it's hard for her to get around now. She hasn't even seen her apple trees in about five years. Pete wants to check it out while he's here, though, and let Joyce know how it's doing. Pete and I go outside. The orchard is so overgrown that I don't even realize we're standing in the middle of it. There are trees all around us, but they're covered in shrubs. It's just like so poetic to me that all the trees that she that are so local to her and that she found are the ones that do so well yeah they're they're healthy you know they're not going anywhere but they are overgrown uncared for so many years of work covered in privet it seems like such a heartbreak but pete tells me it's not before i understood that everything was preserved uh-huh. In it, I like got. I would always get pretty sad in here, but you know, I I understand that every variety I've made sure that, and many other people have made sure that everything in here is not a one-off and that someone has it. 
Everything that Joyce has grown has been passed on, grafted onto apple trees around the South. Back in Mintone, Alabama, we're on Pete's land, where pigs are chewing on vegetable scraps. They're preparing the soil in Pete's new orchard. His orchard could not look more different from Joyce's. He just planted it. I don't notice the trees here either, but for a different reason. At this point, they're just sticks poking out of the mud. To me, it looks kind of like mud in one tree. What do you see? <laughs> it's, I can see a mature orchard, uh, anywhere from green to red, apples hanging off of a tree, um, tree after tree. But it will be about five more years until the orchard looks like what Pete's describing. Pete and I leave the orchard in his backyard and go into his house. He has something important to do inside today. This is, my little this is our little ferment room. Um, today, Pete is bottling hard cider. This is the first cider to be made with Fetty Wap. After Pete and Eliza found Fetty Wap, Pete pressed the apples, and he let them ferment in the open air. Then the juice went into a big jug with an airlock. And that's when the alcohol production begins. Today, Pete's going to transfer the big jug of cider into small bottles. Super DIY homebrew, just have a rubber tube and I'm siphoning out of a, a apple juice jug. The really exciting part of today, though, is that we get to taste the cider. This batch is actually a blend of Fetty Wap and another wild apple that Pete found in Birmingham. Pete pours us a glass. This first smells like, like juniper berries and caramel, but it's definitely time to taste it. So it definitely like puckers my tongue. I take a sip too. It's really tart. I'm not used to this taste and it's kind of hard to drink. And even though I don't want more than a sip or two, I understand the appeal of this kind of cider. The taste is much more complex than the big brand hard ciders on the market. You don't get the whole picture the first time it hits your tongue. The flavor keeps evolving in your mouth. Pete thinks the cider will mellow out over time. He also thinks Fetty Wap might be better paired with an apple that's sweeter than the one he used in this cider. But he still has faith in this apple. The cider recipe just needs to be refined. Will Fetty Wap really be the next great cider apple? Could be. But Diane Flint at Foggy Ridge Cider thinks it would be unlikely to stumble on a great cider apple that nobody knows about yet. The best cider apples in the world are known, are likely known, and the chance of finding a wild apple is, you know, one in hundreds of, that would be better than Hughes Crab or Yarlington Mill or Dabinet or Ashmead's Kernel or Harrison. It's just, I'm not going to live long enough for that. And apple enthusiasts who are chasing that sort of thing down may like the chase um, and the sense of adventure. But if your goal is to make wonderful cider, we know scores of apples that will do that today. Diane does think there's value in hunting apples in order to connect a place in its past. For Pete and Eliza, the adventure and the business are intertwined. They do think Fetty Wap will make a great cider, but they know the apple stands for a lot more than that. To them, Fetty Wap means adventure, a connection across generations, a fight against monoculture. Fetty Wap didn't come with a story but Pete and Eliza have given it one.
Mary Helen Montgomery is a radio producer based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thanks to Laura Candler for her help on this piece. Music for this episode was by Fetty Wap, Blue Dot Sessions, Driftwood Soldier, Jason Shaw, Dr. Turtle, Computer vs. Banjo for Diagram Collective, and David Shulman and Quiet Life Motel. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to managing editor Sarah Camp Milam and to Gravy's brand new intern, Tyler Pratt. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... Well, the dog days of summer are here. Beat the heat by dipping into the saltwater south, Harkers Island, North Carolina. That is the SFA's latest oral history project. Harkers Island is in the Outer Banks of North Carolina and was, for generations, accessible only by boat. In the face of a changing landscape and a dwindling fishing industry, which has closed all but one of the fish houses on the island, those who are Harkers Island born and bred revel in their traditions. You can visit southernfoodways.org to explore the island and meet folks like Mila Guthrie, owner of the Seaside Galley, the only locally owned restaurant on the island, and Eddie Willis, who fishes using centuries-old techniques while adapting to the flux of the modern-day industry. While you're online, take a moment to become an SFA member. Membership dollars support SFA work, including our oral history projects and this podcast. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, what would you want to eat while working 1,800 feet underground? I I brought bologna and cheese most of the time. Sometimes banana sandwiches, you know, but mainly bologna and cheese or ham and cheese, you know, something like that. Just kind of swap it around. A coal miner's lunch. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>